This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. What do they say, Dan? What's the way to eat an elephant? With salt. Your value does not come from it, and it's not the one true path to success or fulfillment. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we share the top 10 tips for success in grad school from an early career PhD. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 145. I'm Joshua Hall. I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Happy Thanksgiving week, Daniel. Is it really? Are you being serious? Oh, no, it's not. <laughs> it seems like <laughs> it is. Like, Wait a minute. That's way too early. Uh, I was genuinely surprised. Uh, it's very folly. It, se- it seems like it is. Thanksgiving's late. And I think uh, election week seemed like it lasted a month. So maybe that's what's throwing me off. It definitely took a long time and will continue to take time. Uh, Josh, you, in the, in the spirit of the IPA free fall, you found for us something that I think is going to... What I'm going to say is we better talk fast because this one is a high gravity special. What's the ABV on this stand? This is a 12 and a half percent. Whoo. I need to go slow. Under go normal slow. circumstances, we would be splitting this beer. So Dan, let me tell, let me tell our listeners what we have here. This is from Boulevard Brewing in Kansas City, Missouri. And we are sampling the Manhattan Social Club. And this is a limited release that is inspired by a Manhattan, the cocktail. Dan, are you familiar with a, a Manhattan? Yes, that is my drink of choice if I'm mixing a drink because there's only three ingredients. And so it's easy to have those things on hand. It tastes delicious. All right, tell us what are those three ingredients? Bourbon. I assume bourbon and not whiskey. I'll say bourbon. Yep. Uh, sweet vermouth, usually red in color, and bitters. Some kind of Angostura bitters. That's it. But I don't know the the ratios. I just kind of pour them in until it looks right and go from there. I don't know why. I, I love bourbon. I'm definitely a, a bourbon guy. But I tend to, if I'm going to have a bourbon cocktail, I tend to gravitate towards the old-fashioned instead of the Manhattan. What's in that? Well, it appears to be pretty much the same. It's, it has a little bit of sugar and no vermouth. So I see. It gets a sweetness from sugar. From, that's right. Than- that's right. But anyway, Dan, so I'm interested to hear you like a Manhattan cocktail. So what do you think of this Manhattan-inspired beer? Well, we'll, we'll start on color, yeah? It looks like a, a stout. A little, I would say a little, what's that scale? <laughs> it's like a few notches below. What was that really dark porter we had a couple episodes ago? This one, I would say a dark brown, like a l- deep leather. Yeah, not not quite to the same level. Not quite as opaque. I give it a very yeasty smell. When it, when I first opened it, I could smell the yeast. But the the flavor is very sweet. It's very smooth. It doesn't taste like it's 12.5%. And so I think this is one to be very careful with. It, t- it tastes a little bit like chocolate to me. That's what I was going to say, Dan. When we had that s'mores porter a few weeks ago, that was also, a, I believe, a fairly high-gravity beer, we had a hard time getting that down. I mean, that was a that thick That one was beer. over the top. Yeah, that was that was a little too sweet, a little too cloying. But I don't think I've had a beer this high gravity that also was this easy drinking, if that makes sense. And I don't know if that's a good thing. No, that sounds very dangerous. So it is, uh, 
about four in the afternoon, four thirty in the afternoon right now. So maybe it's not a good sign that uh, this may speak to how the rest of my evening is going to go. Look, look at it this way, Josh. Where else do you have to be? <laughs> That's a good point. That is a good point. Nowhere these days. Hey, Dan, wanted to say a couple special thank yous. First, we have a new Patreon patron. Who is it? I wanted to say a special thank you to uh, Brian, our newest uh, Patreon patron. Thank you so much. We'll see you in the Slack channel. Josh, in the last episode, I talked about how in my undergraduate days, I definitely mixed up a cell line or two, and that had consequences for my research. Um, well, our friends at Promega are working to help prevent things like that for people like me. Uh, Promega scientists have been working hard to address the identification of cell lines, and they are working with the American National Standards Institute Committee, and they have drafted official authentication guidelines. So if you need help authenticating your cell lines, you can go to promega.com slash hellophd, and you'll find some in-depth resources there to help you figure out what's in the dish and what's not in the dish. All right, Dan. Well, why don't we jump right into our topic of the week? Sounds good. All right, Dan, we are going to do something we haven't done on the show for a while. We are going to have a listicle episode. That's right, Josh. And this one comes from Australia. Um, a recently graduated early career researcher named Evelyn DePlaces has written what she calls How to PhD, 10 Tips from Hindsight. And the reason I love uh, articles and blog posts like this is because I think you've noticed, Josh, when, when you're new at a job or recently out of a place, your insights about this experience are much fresher and much sharper. And then over time, you kind of forget things or you get used to how things are. And so there's that moment right as you transition that I think you have a lot of insight about what's behind you and about this new experience that you're having. And so I love being able to capture some of these ideas. Yeah, you know, you're not far enough out that you've forgotten everything and you've got your rose-colored glasses on. Because I think uh, the edge is taken off a bit the farther out you get. But, you know, Dan, I always remember the, the saying, and I don't remember who said it, but there are two ways you can keep from burning your hand on a hot stove. One is you touch a hot stove and burn yourself, and so you know never to do that again. But the other way, the preferred way is someone else who has touched a hot stove tells you, hey, don't touch that hot stove. And I think that's what getting advice from folks who have finished the PhD process can be really, one reason it can be really helpful for people who are going through the process now to take advantage of those things that you might, might not be thinking about, but also avoid some of these pitfalls you might encounter. You're saying that graduate school is a hot stove, Josh? <laughs> you said it, not me, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> you said it. You said it. So so we're going to go through this this list of, of things that she learned, and she's got a lot of great links that we're going to go through. I just want to remind people that graduate training in Australia is a little bit different, and it's something we talked about back in episode 115, which we called PH Down Under, Four Ways a PhD is Better in Australia. Some of the things are higher education was affordable. There were ways that they could pay for their PhD program. PhD takes just three years. And, th and there were some other things we talked about in that episode. The reason I bring that up is because some of the things that she learned might be a little bit different from something you might learn if you were in the United States or in Britain or in China or somewhere else. And so keep that in mind. She may not have faced some of the struggles with how to get funding, right? Because she is in a place where they take care of that. And I just want everybody to be aware. 
Yeah, Dan, this article did remind me what a big fan I became of academia in Australia after learning a little more about it through this episode. So I would absolutely recommend, if you haven't heard that episode, PH Down Under. Also, super clever title, Dan. I think you came up with that. We do our best, Josh. <laughs> but yeah, the, the time to degree being much shorter. Uh, lots of You know I'm a big fan of that. So I, I do know that. Why don't, you, why don't you kick us off, Josh, and, and, and get the listicle started? All right, sure. So the first one is take charge. It's your PhD. Be proactive, have a plan, and then be prepared to revise that plan many times. Remember, in the end, it's your PhD, and that means it's your responsibility. How, how does that advice strike you, Josh? Is that is it worth making a plan or because that plan is never going to work out the way you intended, should you just not make the plan? No, I think this is super important advice. And this is actually something, Dan, that I tell first year grad students right when they're starting out in our program. We make sure that all these students coming in know about all the support that's available to them, uh, that there are lots of people there who want to help you succeed. We've invested a lot in you and we want you to do well. But at the end of the day, no matter what you're doing, you have to be the one who wants it the most, right? You're the one who has to get up every day and do your thing because everybody else has their own things that they're trying to juggle and do. So at the end of the day, it is your responsibility. It's up to you. So take charge of your own career. And I think that might come up uh, farther down the list too. But even as you think about what you think you want to do with your PhD and during your PhD process, Certainly be open to advice and seek out advice from others. But at the end of the day, remember, it's your life, it's your training, it's your career, and you have to do what's best for you. Yeah, I guess that is the actual advice here is take charge. It's your PhD. I I focused on the plan, but it really is about the fact that no one is going to hand you the list of steps that you need to do to finish your PhD. It is in your court to do what you need to do to finish. And that personal responsibility might be new for some people who came out of undergrad and they knew what was going to be on the test and they knew what to study for the next semester. And it is a different uh, world. It's even different from maybe being in the working world where when you have a job, there are goals that your company has and things that you need to get accomplished. So you are, are really uh, freestyling it as a PhD student. And you need to know that going in and not wait until somebody hands you the goals. And, and I love that she also makes sure to mention, have a plan, but don't be afraid to change your plan. Uh, I know, Dan, both of us, we came out of grad school wanting very different things, perhaps, than when we came into grad school. So even if you've had a dream, a professional dream your whole life, with new information, don't be afraid to, to follow a new path that you, that you discover that's interesting to you. I love that. Uh, number two is look after your PhD mentor supervisor. Uh, and she talks about how the relationship with your supervisor obviously has a big impact on your time as a student. And like any relationship you're in, whether it's your family or a significant other or whatever it is, it's a give and take. Both people are involved. And there are different types of supervisor relationships. We've talked about some of those on the show. We'll probably talk about them again. But if you don't put work into that relationship and manage your supervisor and work on on understanding how they operate and telling them how you operate. All of those things have to happen. And again, you have to be proactive about that relationship. Your experience really does rise and fall on that relationship. And I think we've talked about that on the show before. To some degree, I wish it weren't so critical, right? There's really a lot at stake on that relationship working well. And so this is a topic, Dan, you and I talked a little bit offline that I think this is one we want to go in depth a little more on because it is so important on 
self-reflection and understanding yourself and how you work and what kind of mentorship works best for you, the more you can understand that, the more that can inform the mentoring relationship you enter into, right? Better to do that work before you (laughs) kind of enter into that relationship. That being said, you absolutely do have to be mindful of that relationship being solid. And as a student, there are ways you can influence that relationship for the positive. But what you probably want to do is is be proactive in, in making sure you are maintaining that, that positive relationship. Yeah, and one of the great things about her post is that she provides links to resources you can use. This is not just you know, mental exercise of thinking about things, there are some worksheets. So in this particular topic, she has some links to an expectations and supervision questionnaire, where you can go and uh, put your name and your supervisor's name, and you can write down how important are the this list of things to me. So is it the supervisor's responsibility to select a research topic one to five? Or is it the student's responsibility for selecting the topic? Is the supervisor the one who decides the framework and the methodology? Or is it the student? knowing your expectation in writing and then knowing your supervisor's expectation in writing is going to highlight the unspoken things that you went in assuming one thing and they went in assuming another and having it written down is really going to uh, prevent some heartache in the future. I think if there are two concrete tips that our listeners can take away from this piece of advice, it is schedule a time, sit down with your advisor and say explicitly, what are your expectations of me and of others working in the lab? And think a little bit about what are your expectations of your advisor and, and have that conversation. And, and the other one is, if you haven't done it for a while or if you haven't done it ever, at an upcoming meeting with your advisor, open that door for feedback. Say, hey, you know what? What are, am I meeting your expectations? Or actually even better saying, what are ways that I could improve as a researcher, as a scientist, and open that door to get that feedback? Uh, I think that's something all, all trainees should do. Here, here. Number three is monitor your progress. Um, three or four years might sound like a long time, or five or six if you're in the United States, but time flies when you're having a good time and working hard. And I, I think, you know, we've talked about this, Josh, where it can sometimes, you can make progress but not understand the progress you've made. Or you can spin your wheels for a long time and not realize that you haven't moved forward. And so she has some links here for a PhD toolkit from ThinkWell. And it's some PowerPoint files where you can put in what tasks you need to have done. Not not day-to-day. I, I, there are some worksheets and things for day-to-day work. But broadly, what do I need to have done in the next three months in terms of what my experiments need to show so that I can get to the next step, which is to write up this paper, which so I can get to the next step, which is a chapter for my dissertation. Taking the time to just quickly sketch that out, I think gives you the ability to look back in six months and say, oh, I actually did get through steps one, two, and four. I just, I didn't do three, but it didn't work out and it's okay. But I did make progress. And I think it's really helpful to see. What do they say, Dan? What's the way to eat an elephant? With salt? <laughs> one bite at a time. I think that is so so key, Dan, and it's so easy going through the process of grad school to always be in a mindset of, I'm not getting anything done. I've made no progress. So I think you're absolutely right, Dan, looking at some of these toolkits or finding ways to be organized to document your progress, this incremental progress you make day after day, week after week, whereas then you do look back six months later and think, okay, yeah, I really am moving forward. I really am getting a lot done. 
Uh, you do number four, Josh, because this one doesn't apply to me at all. <laughs> all right. Prepare for things to go wrong. I don't understand why you would even put this in a, a top 10. Yeah, I think this is absolutely critical for anyone going into research uh, because research will fail and it will fail most of the time. And really, it's not it's not failing. I always try to push students to recalibrate uh, their thinking about when experiments fail. Like, well, did the experiment fail or the result was not what you expected it to be? Because those are sort of two different, two different things. But what Evelyn mentions here is uh, learn from your mistakes and get back up to persevere and learn how to live with that uncertainty that's integral to, to doing the PhD. And that's that's true, Dan. I mean, there's not a whole lot else to say from that, but that is one of the biggest challenges of being in research, doing your PhD, is you can work really, really hard on something, put a lot of time in, and sometimes you don't get the outcome that you expected to get. And I think in some ways, research might be unique in that aspect. And it's really important to not internalize those setbacks as something you did wrong or some shortcoming on on your behalf but it's just part of how research works and that's okay yeah she summarizes a phd is much more about resilience than most people appreciate and i think that's true we before we have a phd we look at it and we say oh that person must be brilliant or they worked really hard and they did all these things you could be brilliant and work really hard and if you don't have resilience you will not get a phd and so i think she's she's exactly right there absolutely dan i love this next one get out there and get involved. And what what she's talking about here is that there's a lot more to being successful as a grad student than just sitting in your office or sitting in your lab and keeping your head down at your bench. And this is something I know that uh, you preach, Dan, that's near and dear to your heart um, and was important to you, but the importance of networking and building your communication skills and really COVID may not be the best opportunity to do this, but getting out of your bubble, meeting new and interesting people that are doing things you are interested in and telling others about the cool stuff that you're interested in. Uh, some of my best times in graduate school that I can remember the best are going to conferences, going on research trips, uh, speaking in front of high school students. Those types of things allegedly don't help you <laughs> to get your dissertation finished but they do make science useful and exciting and they keep you motivated. So 10 years later or 15 years later, when you look back, you're going to be so happy that you went and did some of those other things. You know, Dan, I can remember being a grad student and a postdoc and, and doing some outreach events where I would go to high school classrooms and talk about the science I was doing and what I liked about research. And I always found that I came back to the bench, came back to the lab even more motivated and excited about the work that I was doing in the lab because of that time getting out of the lab and, and sharing science in a different way with different people. And, and I always felt the same way going to a conference too. You would come back feeling really energized. And so I actually think that time away, talking to other people, getting ideas from other folks, um, or just sharing what you're excited about with people outside of your lab can really help to motivate you and give you perspective on the work you're doing. Yeah, this one is much tougher during COVID, but there are still opportunities. There are things like Skype as scientists, which we've had episodes on, um, other ways of getting involved and getting out there. You know, Dan, a lot of folks have pointed out that that COVID has opened up a lot of opportunities for uh, graduate students, especially who maybe wouldn't have resources to attend some of these big conferences that happen internationally or 
that would require purchasing plane tickets and expensive registrations now are available. And so maybe that's something that will stick later on is more of these opportunities to connect with people all across the world using technology. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's not all happening in the same place now. So I think there are some benefits there. Number six is work-life balance. Uh, and I'm I'm laughing even as I read it. Treat it like a job. That means when you're at work, you're at work, not on social media every 15 minutes or two hour lunch breaks. But it also means that you have weekend and holidays. This one is is I think going to forever be a struggle for graduate students. The sense of guilt that you feel for being away on a Saturday is intense. And I think the advice is is actually very good because I think you're more productive when you have rested. But I think it is always going to be a a journey and a battle and whatever word you want to describe the the fact that you're going to feel like you need to be there all the time, even though you shouldn't be there all the time. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this one lately. And Dan, what do you what do you think? Not to put you on the spot, but do you think this is something that is also uniquely academia? This complete well, I, I don't think it is, but, but this lack of separation between, or this tendency to lack separation between work and not work. And, and I say this because I was having a, a meeting uh, recently with uh, a faculty uh, person and a student, and advice the, the faculty person was giving was, you know, you've just got to find the passion for what you're doing, and then it's not work anymore. And while I appreciate that sentiment, and I think there have been times where I have felt that way about my work, I really don't believe that's a sustainable frame of mind or necessarily the best goal <laughs> for for your work is if I just... Well, and I think it also potentially sets you up for discontent or doubt if you suddenly do feel burned out or you do need a break or you're burning the candles at both ends and you think oh, well, I must just not be passionate enough. That's why I'm feeling burned out right now, where really you might just need a break. Yeah. To answer your first question, I have seen this outside of academia, um, but I've worked in startups, and startups are the same way, where it is 24-7. Um, but again, I agree with you. I don't think it's healthy. I'm 100% agree with you that there are moments in your life that you're going to be so engaged in the work that you want to keep doing it. And and I'll get into some piece of code that is like a puzzle to me. I do puzzles at breakfast and lunch, right? That's what I do while I'm eating. I do uh, crossword puzzles and, and other word puzzles. So when a piece of code is that kind of puzzle for me, I will work on it if it's nighttime or if it's the weekend. But it doesn't happen all the time. And I think I also like being outdoors. And if you like being outdoors or if you like going to the movie or seeing your friends, then no amount of excitement about your laboratory is going to replace that. And so I think it, it's kind of ridiculous to say every scientist has to be obsessed with their research all the time. Uh, I think there are very good scientists who benefit from the fact that they have other inputs in their brain that are helping them be creative in a different way because they are not totally focused on a single point in the distance. As I think uh, think back on some of the, what I would say the quote unquote um, best scientists that I have known or know they're very well-rounded individuals and they do have interests and passions that they're very passionate about outside of science and research. And I think that can light up your brain in different ways and open up brain space that could be useful in your day-to-day -day work. Okay, Josh, number seven, write early, write regularly. It's not the fun part of your PhD, but no thesis equals no PhD. 
I think in a lot of biomedical uh, PhD programs, your papers are your dissertation. That being said, I definitely didn't write any papers until I had to. I didn't, you know, I wasn't like drafting the introduction while the first experiment was happening. Yeah, you know, I think this is good advice though, because, and, and I've heard, I've heard the advice before uh, that I agree with on principle, but I've never effectively <laughs> put it into motion that you should build writing into your daily routine if possible, maybe 15 minutes a day or 30 minutes a day without a lot of pressure on yourself. Like just sit down and, and write, let the words spew out. Don't worry about editing or, or whether you're using grammar incorrectly or you're not saying things the best um, that can come later, but just getting the ideas out. And, you know, Dan, wow, right now I feel like I have several things I would like to write that I'm not because I've always got these other things to do. And for some reason, uh, and this is probably not true for everyone, but I know it's true for a lot of us, writing, the act of writing gets pushed down the priority chain <laughs> for so many things that seem more immediate. And uh, I'm not sure exactly why that is. But one thing that when I have sat down to write, the thing that always surprises me is if I give myself some uninterrupted time and space, even half an hour, at the end of it, one of two things happens. One, at the end of 30 minutes, I'm amazed how much I got down on on paper, on my word processor. Um, but the other thing that often happens is once I get going, I blow through that 30-minute window, right? And once you just sort of break the barrier of getting started, the thoughts and the ideas and the words continue to flow. And, and I do think it's good advice for grad students to not wait until oh, now I have enough data to start putting a paper together. I'm going to start from scratch writing a paper. You can always be working on, write a draft of your introduction. Let's say you do a key, key experiment you know will be part of the paper. Write the figure legend, write the methods section, and that way it's not such a daunting task when the time comes to draft that manuscript. You've got all these bits and pieces to, to work from to put together. I think it would be a really fascinating personal experiment so so every person listening has some experiment that they are planning to do or they are in the middle of. I think it'd be interesting to take 10 minutes right now and write a paragraph as if your experiment went the way you thought it would. What did, what did it show? Uh, how does it fit into the broader topic? What are the questions that a reviewer is going to ask you about the steps you took to prove that what you're trying to say is actually true? I think it wouldn't take very long, but I think the act of writing that down as if it succeeded perfectly would give you, oh, actually, I said that it was showing this, but I guess these other three things could be happening. And it would may reveal other experiments that you're going to need to plan for or controls that you could put into your current experiment. I think it'd be really fascinating to try that. That's so right. And I think what happens, Dan, if you can remember you know, being in the lab on a day-to-day -day basis, sometimes we get so consumed with doing experiments that we're not, and we've preached this on the show before, sometimes we fall into this trap of not thinking enough, right? We feel like we need to do experiments that we don't think about experiments. And what writing really does is, and this is a, what I, th I think what you're getting at, it forces you to stop and crystallize your ideas and make sure they fit in some logical way together. And, and it really forces you to identify some potential gaps in your thinking and gaps in your logic when you actually have to write it out in some organized way. That can be a worthwhile thing to do also. You want to do number eight for us? Yeah, Dan. So our, our next one, number eight, 
is one that we feel very strongly about, I believe, and that is invest in your career development and expand your horizon. What this one is all about is not ignoring the important thing that's going to happen after you graduate, which is you're going to be moving in some career direction. And so uh, be engaging that career trajectory, those ideas you have about the career you want during the time you're in graduate school. That is an important thing to do. And we're going to talk about this in a future episode as well. Uh, but it, it ties into number nine, Josh, and the two kind of go together for me. A PhD does not mean academia. And most of the people around you that are getting PhDs will not work in, in academia. It's, it's a little bit confusing and a little bit um, misleading that because you are in a university setting and your PI has a PhD, this must be what PhDs do. But the reality is you're not encountering all the PhDs out in the world that are doing other things. And so what you need to be doing is focusing on some of the transferable skills that you're gaining and don't get stuck in the notion that if you don't find a faculty position after you go through a postdoc that you're a failure as a scientist because there is a wide world. I hope that everybody has gotten that out of listening to this podcast, but there's just so much that you can do with this degree and the type of thinking that you have learned. Yeah, and we talked about it in the last episode with uh, Dr. Hansen about really thinking about what motivates you, what is exciting to you. And the good news is there are lots of things you can do with a PhD. You're learning lots of skills that are a lot more broadly applicable than you might think they are. And what's important, and actually goes with the previous thing we talked about, part of engaging with your career is not just thinking about what jobs do I want specifically, but what do I like to do? What energizes me? What motivates me? And what doesn't? And that's so important to do uh, during the time you're, you're in your training. It's not just academia. And I think that's why it's important to seek out mentors, not just within academia and not just your advisor. We talked about how that relationship is very important. But as you think about broader career options for you, it's important to talk to people with different perspectives who have different experiences and know about some different opportunities uh, that might be a great fit for you. All right, Josh, let me get to number 10. Never forget you are not your PhD and your PhD is not you. She talks about making sure you nurture a sense of self-worth and ident identity that is not attached to your research achievements. This one, I think, is easier after a PhD to say your PhD is not you, I think it's very hard to experience that while you are still in training. You are striving for this goal, and if you don't finish it, you get nothing, right? Or you get maybe you get a master's degree, but you still feel like you haven't achieved the thing that you were trying to do. And for me, it was so impossible to distance myself from that degree. Looking back, I can say, oh, look, it's... It's not who I am. I'm not using it. I'm a valuable person. I can contribute in other ways. But in that moment, I think it's just so hard to remember. I think this highlights another reason that it's important to interact with people outside of academia during your graduate training, because it's so easy to have a skewed perspective if you are engulfed in this academic environment where it seems like either everyone around you has a PhD or is working on a PhD it gives this false impression that that is what's valued to the world. And I think what's really, uh, what can really pull you out of that is talking to people in other sectors, interacting with friends who do very different things, talking to them about their experiences 
and realizing, okay, this is a thing you can do. These are some skills you can gain that can be useful and can be very satisfying if it's what you want to do. But your value does not come from it. And it's not the one true path to success or to fulfillment. Uh, there are many, many other uh, paths you could go on that are equally valuable and lead you towards success. We can never say that enough. Josh, that was 10. And I am positive that 10 things to do today is overwhelming, especially because they are all very complex and have many steps. But what I hope people will do is if one of these items really resonated with you, if you were thinking about your career development and how you haven't done enough of that, or if you really have wanted to start writing but haven't done that, or if your mentor relationship is a little bit frayed, pick one of these things and and do, you know, there are some links and resources that we're going to link to for each of these steps. I'd say pick one of them and take one step. If you need to write a paragraph today, great. If you need to go to the ThinkWell website and download the PowerPoint file for mapping out your next experiment or whatever it is. Just do one of them and that will put you closer to your goal and to your success. Dan, I love the way she ends this article and she says, it's a journey, enjoy the ride. I think if I could go back and do do something differently with my PhD, it would be just that. I think it was so easy to get caught up in in the stresses of getting things done and jumping through hoops and, and feeling like I needed to finish that I don't think I appreciated the level of, of independence and freedom and focus on my own learning that I actually had. I think I missed out on some of that enjoying the ride part that I would do differently if I could go back. Yeah, my experience was more, it's a gauntlet, enjoy the beating. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let it kill you before the end. (laughs) Yeah, even now, I have a hard time. You know, I remember how I felt then, and and you and I had very different experiences. So uh, your advice is your advice. My advice is uh, get out as fast (laughs) as you can. All right, Dan. Well, thank you to Evelyn for putting this together, and I hope that this was useful to you all who are listening. And... Let us know if you have tips for getting through graduate school as a trainee. Maybe you're on the other side and you look back and you've learned a few things and you want to help others not go through the the same things that you did. Uh, Let us know. We'd love to share it on the show. If you have other questions or topic ideas, we would love to hear them. You can email us podcast at hellophd.com or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting platform. We love getting your feedback and it helps new listeners find the show. If you would like to support the show, you can become a patron. Simply go to our website, hellophd.com, click the Become a Patron button, or you can visit patreon.com slash hellophd. We would appreciate the beer money and thanks so much to Brian and the ongoing support from all of our patrons. All right, Josh. Well, this has been good to catch up to remember 10 things that I should have done and didn't do as a graduate student. And uh, I just hope you have a really great Christmas. (laughs) All right. I wasn't jumping the gun that far ahead. (laughs) Easter. Happy Easter, Josh. Dan, if I have one more tip to share with everyone, it is please wear your mask, socially distance, and keep yourself and others around you safe. All right. No arguing with that, Josh. We'll see you next time. See you next time.